good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. good. It's good to see you. And we got our TV working so everybody can take a, a big breath and relax. Oh, man, just the tension in the room. You could just cut it with a knife. Uh, it's great to have you with us. As Brad said, um, we're entering into a season here. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent as a church, um, and that is the 40 days, not including Sundays, that leads up to Easter Sunday, April 21st this year. And so uh, we are starting a new series, and kind of the idea with this series is we're looking at these different characters, these different points that, that in the story that lead up to what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so to give you some context of why we're doing this, the biggest mistake I think that we make whenever we read the Bible, particularly if you try to read the Bible, if you're reading the Old Testament, the biggest mistake I think we make is we approach it like it's a collection of stories about some other people who live in some other time in some other place who have this encounter with God. And the reality is these stories, every story we're going to look at in this series all the way up to Easter, these stories are about us. And the reason they're about us is because every single one of them points to the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest need that any of us has. He's the greatest need of our world. And so we see not only how each one of these stories points to Jesus, but we see ourselves in the story and we see our own need as we do that. And so we're gonna begin this morning, this whole journey of This Is Us by looking at the story of Abraham in scripture. And to give you some context, you can find the story of Abraham in, in the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 is where Abraham's story begins, and it goes for 13 chapters all the way to Genesis 25 is where Abraham finally dies. And so rest assured, we will not cover 13 chapters of the Bible and information this morning uh, in one sermon. Um, you, you can thank me later for that. Uh, so 13 chapters, I would encourage you though to go and read it on your own, Genesis 12 through Genesis 25, and just familiarize yourself with that story. We're just gonna hit kind of the highlights, the big points of Abraham's life. And so Abraham is known as the father of the Jewish faith. And so in Genesis 12, Abraham's uh, story begins. And so we're gonna join in and start right there in verse one. It happened like this. The Lord had said to Abram, his name is changed later to Abraham by God. God says, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So this is how Abraham's story begins. Abraham has this encounter with God and he hears God speak to him. And in this moment, God gives three promises to Abraham that he's going to fulfill throughout his life. But these three promises are much bigger than Abraham's individual life because these three promises point toward God's redemptive plan. It actually launches God's redemptive plan for all of us, for all of humanity. And so these are the three promises God gives Abraham in that passage we just read. The first one is he promises him land. So I'm going to give you a land. Now that part was not fulfilled until Deuteronomy 28 and 30 when the nation of Israel began to go right up to and enter the land of Canaan and to enter the promised land of what is Israel. Uh, the next promise he gives him, he said, I'm going to give you a son and a family. What he actually says is I'm going to make you into a great nation. But what you have to understand about this moment in Abraham's life is Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are childless. 
They've been unable to conceive. They don't have any children. So God says, I'm gonna give you a land. I'm gonna give you a son. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, your family. And he says, the final promise, all people, all families of the earth will be blessed through you. Everyone is gonna be blessed through you. And these, these three promises launch the redemptive history of humankind, God's plan for all of us to be redeemed and to be saved. And so uh, I love, the thing I love about Abraham's story, the thing I love about this passage of scripture, Genesis 12, right at the beginning, is the first words that God speaks to the father of the Jewish nation, the father of Israel. The very first words God says when he appears to Abraham is this word right here, leave. That's what he says to Abraham. His very first words out of his mouth, he says, leave Abraham and go. Leave your father's house, leave your home country, everything you've known, everything you've grown up with and go, you and your wife, Sarah, and go to the land I will show you. And for me, it, it sort of begs the question, why couldn't Abraham have just stayed where he was and had God fulfill those promises? Have you ever wondered that when you read that story? Why in the world couldn't Abraham just stay right where he was? Why couldn't God have said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to stay right where you are, right where you know, right where you're familiar, and I'm gonna give you that land, right where you stay. Eventually, that's gonna be your land, Abraham. And right there in that land, I'm gonna give you a son, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and you guys will eventually take over that land, right where you are, and then eventually, I'm gonna bless all the families of the world through you, right there where you are. Why couldn't God have done that? Just, just to give you some context of what it meant, of what it meant for Abraham and Sarah to actually have to leave and go, Abraham, at this point in the story, when, when God appears to him in Genesis 12 and speaks to him, Abraham is 75 years old and his wife Sarah is 60 years old. Not exactly the time of life when you leave your father's home and your home country and go to another land, is it? And if you're in your 20s, it's like, yeah, leave your father's home. That seems like the right time to do that. But he's 75 and his wife is 60. And, and, and God says, leave everything you've ever known. This doesn't seem like the time of life that would be the most wise to go do that. Not just that, but the journey itself was absolutely harrowing. So go ahead to this map. Um, Abraham, at the moment in Genesis 12, when God speaks to him, he's in Ur of the Chaldeans. That was his home country, his father's land. That's in modern-day Iraq. That's where he was. And God says, leave and go. It was, it was roughly a 955-mile journey before they finally reached the land of Canaan. So they go up here to the land of Haran first, and then they go from Haran down here until they finally get to the land of Canaan, which eventually becomes the promised land, the land of Israel. This is 955 miles. That's a lot for an old dude to go, uh, right? Especially in ancient times, it wasn't like you could you know, call an Uber and just go for it. This, is, this would have been an incredible track. But even to add on top of that, you're probably picturing like Abraham and his wife Sarah just sort of wandering through the wilderness on this 955 mile journey. What we know about Abraham is he was a herder. He had herds. That's how he made his money. That's, how, that's what his livelihood was. So he would have had cattle, tons and tons of cattle, and he would have had people with him helping to oversee the cattle and oversee all the, all the livestock as he would have been traveling. So just the idea of traveling day by day was this huge logistical undertaking. He would have had to have people like running ahead and kind of scouting out places to camp for the night and then running back and saying, okay, just a few miles over this hill, and then that's where we're going to camp 
and you have this huge group of people, all this stuff to manage on this long journey. This is a huge undertaking. Leave and go. The other thing we know about Abraham, in Joshua 24, it tells us that Abraham's father was an idolater, which basically means Abraham grew up in the pagan culture, the pagan deities that they would worship at this time in this area. And we know lots about that and that, uh, those deities and things that people worshiped at this time. And so Abraham's father was not a follower of God. When it says, leave your father's home, he would have been leaving behind the pagan culture he knew. Now, what you need to know about pagan culture is that when you cross this river, it means you have to worship that God of that river. So they had all these deities that were kind of assigned to all these different geographical areas. And so if you went up on this mountain, well, you had to offer a sacrifice and you had to worship the God of that mountain. That's how people thought. If you went into this area over here where this group of people live, well, obviously you would have to worship their God. You would have to make a sacrifice and, and, and honor that God of that area. That's how you would travel anywhere. <laughs> so this idea that one guy is gonna follow one God and, and this one God is gonna ask him to leave and go and this one God is gonna remain faithful to him and he's only gonna worship and only follow this one God through all this 955 miles to this land where God is gonna show him, that was like a brand new idea in human history. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. No one had ever tried that before. So God says, leave and go. And I'm gonna show you the land in which I'm gonna bring you into. What's interesting about that is a lot of times when we think about our own journey, when we think about what it meant for each of us to take a journey of faith to find Jesus, for many of us, our story of faith begins with leaving. Many, many people would start their story of how God moved in their life and how they eventually met Jesus with, it began with me having to leave. Maybe it was an old life. Maybe it was an old way. Maybe it was a group of friends. Maybe it was a, a career or a job. But it involved, I had to leave that behind in order to actually pursue Jesus and, and meet Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you grew up in a religious family, in a religious tradition. But what happened is you had to leave that religious tradition. You had to leave that behind in order to find Jesus. Not because it was bad, not because that religious tradition that there was something wrong with it. It worked for your parents. It worked for some people. But how many of you know sometimes religion doesn't actually help us find the person of Jesus? Sometimes it actually gets in the way. And so you, maybe for you, you, part of your story is I had to leave that behind in order to actually find Jesus. Leave and go. Abraham's story resonates with me personally because my own story of faith begins with a moment of leaving. If you've been coming to Frontline for a while, you've heard me share my testimony of how I came to faith. Uh, my story, my journey of faith to find Jesus begins um, at, with the dinner table of our home when I was 12 years old in Indianapolis, Indiana, where we lived. Up to about 12 years old, there wasn't a whole lot I knew about my dad the, the, the main number one thing I knew about my dad was that the most important thing in the world to my father was his job. I knew I wasn't the most important thing in his life, that was for sure. My mom was not the most important thing. My sister, my brother, they were, we were not the most important thing. What I knew about my dad was his job, his career was the most important thing to him. And he was a rock star at his job. He was a consultant for the Indiana Federal Credit Union League. 
there in Indianapolis was kind of home base, but he was on the road constantly. All my dad did was travel when I was a kid. He was always going to the next credit union. He was a great turnaround guy. He would turn these things around. He would be a speaker at this conference or that conference. And he, he was like one of those guys, I, I think of a lot of men this way. It's like he knew how to succeed at his job, right? That he knew how to win at his, at his work. He was a rock star at his job. But it was like when he came home, he didn't know what to do with that. He didn't know how to win when it came to home. And so what he did is he just sort of pursued that. He just pursued his career. And by the age of 12, it was showing in our family. My mom and my dad were on the fast track to divorce, and I knew it. I could feel it every single day. Things were not good. And out of the blue, this moment happens. My dad comes uh, back from one of his trips on the road and he says, okay, I want us all to gather around and sit down around the dinner table, which was already weird because we didn't really do that. So we sat down around the dinner table and he basically proceeds to tell us that, he, that we're leaving. He says, I'm leaving my job with the Indiana Federal Credit Union League. And he begins to explain to us, I'm gonna take a job in this tiny little uh, credit union, managing this tiny little credit union in this podunk town called Marion, Indiana, quite literally the armpit of, the, of America. And it's gonna mean we're gonna have to leave, we're gonna have to move, it's gonna mean a new school, it's gonna mean new everything. But he says, here's the deal, I'm gonna be home every single night, I'm gonna be home on the weekends, and I'm not gonna live this way for one more second things are going to be different. It blew me away. Blew me away. I was not seeing that coming at all. And the weird thing about it was he didn't even know, it wasn't like a spiritual transformation. He didn't do that because God, he'd had an encounter with God yet. What actually happened is he just realized, I mean, I have to leave. I have to get out of this life. It's not working. And so we moved to Marion, Indiana and what happened is the, the first day of school, my mom drops us off. He, she drops me off at um, my middle school there and she's walking out. She begins to cry, you know, first day of school, dropping off my kid in a new community. I don't know anyone. So she begins to cry and as she's leaving the door to, to walk out in the parking lot, my middle school principal stops her and says, hey, you know, new school, this, it's rough, isn't it? First day of school. So he says, hey, I tell you what, since you're new in town, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you, you and your family, why don't you guys come to church with my family this weekend? He invited my mom to church. And so being new, my mom said, okay, why not? I'll try anything. And so uh, we came to church that next weekend. And one year later at that exact church, I had given my life to Jesus and I got baptized in that church. And that's my story of faith. That's how I came to know Jesus. But it began with a moment of leaving. It began with a moment of, of turning away and saying, we're, we're gonna leave. This isn't working, we have to go here. And, and the reason I think God calls Abraham and Sarah to leave and to go, the reason he doesn't say, hey, you can just stay right where you are, don't worry, I'll, I'll fulfill all these promises, is because leaving and going puts us in this place where we're vulnerable and we're dependent on him. Abraham and Sarah were vulnerable when they left their father's home. They left everything they knew. Here's how the Canaan, or I mean, here's how the pagan society worked. Here's how, all, how, here's how we function. Here's how we get our animals food as herders. And now they're in the wilderness. They're in this place of vulnerable dependence on God where they don't know where their provision's coming from. They don't know where, how they're gonna get food. They don't even know where this land ultimately is. They don't know if they're gonna get attacked as they kind of move through these different areas. 
And it's actually through that journey that God actually begins to speak to them and begins to bring about the fulfillment of the promises that he had. They realize their desperate need for God and they learn to depend on God. They learned faith in the wilderness. They learned faith through that journey, through actually leaving and going, as we all do. That's how we learn the journey of faith, is by having to leave what's been familiar to trust God. And so God eventually leads them to the land, and then eventually he gives them a son, their only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. Sarah is 85. How many of you ladies would like to be pregnant at 85 years old? Obviously, God was at work here. Something supernatural happened. God, at the moment where it just didn't make any sort of human sense at all, they have their only son, Isaac, who is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the, the son who's the heir to the promises that are gonna go forward. And there's a whole storyline that goes along with it. We don't have time to get into today. But now there's one promise remaining, this I'm gonna bless all families of the earth through you, Abraham. So how's that gonna happen? So before God fulfills that final promise, before he's able to do that, he puts Abraham's faith to the test. He tests Abraham's faith. Abraham has been leaving and going and following him all this way and God's provided. But before he fulfills that last one, he says, Abraham, I'm gonna test your faith. And the test had to do with Abraham's only son, Isaac. And this moment of testing is this huge pivotal point in the scriptures. Since Genesis 22 is where we find that story. And it goes like this in verse one, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, now stop. We're just going to pause right there for a minute because here's what happens to, when we read that today. When we encounter that, those words today, we tend to freak out in our culture, in our world today, and we go, What? What kind of a God asks for that, right? I mean, literally, it's, it's like, are you kidding me? God leads them on this huge journey and then finally says, I want you to go on another journey. Only this time, this, one, this son that I provided for you, I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. What kind of a God asks a father to kill his own child? See, what kind of a sick God would do that? That's what we think, Right? Don't deny it. Haven't you thought that at some point when you've read that story, if you've read it before? It's like, yeah, this is awful. How could God do that? What we don't understand, again, is, has something to do with pagan culture this time. What you need to know is that the idea of child sacrifice was, was an absolute normal, regular practice in pagan culture at this time. There was absolutely nothing weird at all about this. It was not unusual at all for a deity in the pagan world to ask a follower to sacrifice usually their firstborn child. That was a normal thing. If you want to be really grossed out, go Google the word Moloch, the god Moloch, and, and all the awful, nasty stuff they would do related to child sacrifice. And that wasn't the only one. There were lots of deities that would require child sacrifice. That was a normal part of the pagan culture of the time. And you notice Abraham, if, as we read the story, you're going to notice Abraham doesn't ask any questions. I mean, for you and I, if we were told that by God, we'd be like, what, what are you talking about? We'd have some kind of, at least questions of how do you want me to do it? Abraham seems to know exactly how to do this. Why? It's because his father was an idolater. He'd grown up in pagan culture. He knew this. And what's interesting is, is today, when, when you remove God from a culture, 
we don't move forward, we don't progress. Maybe it's not the God Moloch, but it's the God of women's reproductive health or whatever we call it. We just revert back to child sacrifice. We revert back to whatever we've always done in the past. That's what human history shows us. And so the real question of this moment, the real question that is being asked by this passage of scripture is, is this God, the God of Abraham, is this God different than all the other gods? Or at the end of the day, yeah, Abraham left everything to follow this God. He's been putting his faith in him. But at the end of the day, is this God really just like all the others? Is he gonna be just like all the other pagan gods? Go sacrifice your son. And so Abraham goes to Isaac and he says, Isaac, we're gonna go on a road trip. And I'm guessing this was the last road trip that Isaac ever agreed to go on with his father after you read the story. Hey son, wanna go on another road trip? I'm good, dad, I'm fine. No thank you. So Isaac agrees to go on this road trip with his dad, but his father does not tell him the whole part of, hey, I'm gonna sacrifice you and kill you on a mountain. He doesn't tell him that part. They just go on a journey and they get to the land of Moriah, to the mountain, and this is what happens next. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, makes him carry the wood for the, for the sacrifice, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? You can feel the tension in this moment, can't you? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So this is intense story of what happens. Now, just so you know, this story is a central story, what we just read here in Genesis 22 in the Jewish faith. It's called the Akita. It's like one of their central stories. It's a very sacred moment that people have debated and there's all kinds of midrash about. But, but this story is so much bigger than just this story and this moment. Because what we see right here in this moment, this, the story of Abraham and his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah foretells the story of God and his only son Jesus on Mount Calvary. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up Mount Moriah. Jesus carries the cross on the Via Dolorosa all the way up to Golgotha, Mount Calvary. Isaac is bound and tied down on the altar. Jesus is bound and tied and then nailed to the cross. And here's where the story shifts. Here's the fundamental shift. At the last minute, God provided a, a lamb in place of Isaac, to be sacrificed in place of Isaac so that Isaac could be set free and that he could be saved. And suddenly we see ourselves in Abraham's story. This is us. This is us. 
God provided his only son, Jesus, on the cross to die sacrificially in our place so that we could be saved and that we could be ransomed and set free. And God fulfilled the requirement of the sacrifice. God did it on his own behalf. What Abraham could not do and was not asked to do, God did by sacrificing his son for you and for me. And that's how we have salvation. This whole moment that's happening with Abraham, it points toward Jesus. It points toward the cross. It points toward the ultimate fulfillment of what we find in him. And God gets the glory for it all. It's at this moment right here that God gives the final fulfillment of the promise, of the last promise. Verse 16, this is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. It's because Abraham was obedient because of his faith in God, because of his trust in God's faithfulness that God would be faithful to his promises, we, through Jesus, have salvation. Because this moment, this this promised blessing travels from Abraham to Isaac through the generations, finally to Jesus. And so what does that mean for us? How does that land in our lives today? What that means for us is that we enter, through the person of Jesus, we enter into the same covenant of grace that Abraham entered into through Jesus, through his sacrifice and his death on the cross on our behalf. So when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we find ourselves in him, the reason we, we talk about it in terms of language, like we got saved, it's because literally that's what God did. He provided Jesus on our behalf. He ransomed us. He rescued us. And so we are invited by God to leave our old life, to leave our old way behind, and to, and to entrust ourselves fully to Jesus. And we're invited to inherit the same blessings through Jesus that were given to Abraham. What God started in this moment with Abraham, he's been doing, he's been carrying on even to this moment today. That's why we're in this room today. It's, it's why we're reading Abraham's story today is because it's our story. It's, it's the story of God's redemptive plan for all of us. And so for centuries, people have been leaving and going and they've been making a journey to find Jesus because it all points to him. And so if I could, uh, to kind of wrap this up, I wanna just ask the question, where do you see yourself this morning in Abraham's story? I wanna invite the band to come out right now. And I, I want you to really actually just take a couple minutes right here in service and just reflect on a couple of questions. The first one is this, what is God asking you to leave behind? Maybe it's an old way. Maybe it's an old life. Maybe it's something that has just become more important in your life than Jesus. Maybe it's just that place where you're comfortable. And because of that comfort, it's insulated you from having to live a life of faith. See, see we, we don't fix the system so that it requires more faith for ourselves. That's not what we do as humans. We fix the system so it requires less faith and it gives us more safety. 
What's God calling you to leave behind so you can experience more of Jesus in your life? Next question, similarly, what is God asking you to offer up on the altar in order to trust in him? What is God asking you to offer up on the altar in order to, to trust in him? Think about that. Take, I'm just gonna give you a minute uh, just to actually reflect on that because here's what I know. Whatever God tests you with, and he does test our faith, just like he tested Abraham's faith, what you can see again and again in the scripture and what you can hear in the stories of men and women who have trusted their lives to Jesus over the centuries and even today is that wherever God tests our faith, whatever he calls us to leave behind, whatever he calls us to offer up, up on the altar, that place where he tests our faith is the same place where he wants to bless us. It's the same place where he wants to bring blessing into our lives. It's the actual place of testing where we're asked to, to trust him, where the greatest work happens, where Jesus moves in and just becomes glorious in our lives. Maybe just take a minute and, and jot something down. What's God asking you to leave behind? What's he asking you to offer up on the altar? amazing revelations of this story beyond just the fact that God wants to save you through the person of Jesus and that he wants to bless you in your life right at the area of testing but even beyond that he wants to actually recruit you Jesus wants to recruit you because the very place of testing in our lives actually your test will become your testimony that place of testing where God blesses you when you're faithful to him, when you trust him with it, that's the, actually the area that becomes the part of our stories that we end up sharing with others and that other people see Jesus in our lives through. Your greatest test will become your testimony, will become the thing you share. I love the way that Paul says it to the Corinthian church. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that we are Christ's ambassadors. When we've entrusted our life to Jesus, we become Jesus' ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us, through our lives. Just like Abraham and his story tells the story of Jesus, God wants to tell the story of Jesus through your life through whatever it is that you've had to leave behind to journey toward Jesus. He doesn't just want to bless you, he wants to recruit you. And so Lent is a season where historically, what Christians have done in the season of Lent is we think about the cross and move toward it, is we say, uh, what do I need to deny in my flesh? What do I need to leave behind? What do, I need, what do I need to offer up on the altar so that I can gain more of Jesus in this time, in this season? How does God want to do that in your life? How does he want to do that in your family? I'd love to just offer a prayer before we respond here. 
So Father, we just come before you recognizing that you are the father of all. You're, you're a better father than Abraham. You're a better father than my dad could ever be. You're a better father than I could ever be to my kids. And that's what you want to do for us this morning. God, you want to father us. You want to invite us into your family through the death of Jesus. So thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for providing. Thank you for doing what Abraham could not and, and wasn't ultimately asked to do. Thank you for doing on our behalf. In Jesus, we find salvation. We find wholeness. It's the greatest need of our lives. And so, God, we offer ourselves to you now. Would you show us where in our lives uh, you're calling us to a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of faith, to leave something behind that has become familiar, trusted, counted upon in order to follow you. And we know that it's when we do that, it's when we step into those places, God. Those are the areas of our lives where you want to do your greatest work, where you want to bless, where you want to allow our test to become our testimony. And so I pray that we would see that happen in our church. I pray that we would see that happen, that, that for some of us, God, that we would just see our test become our testimony, that we would see, even as we approach Easter Sunday, God, we just pray that we would see a harvest of people through the story of Jesus gets told through our lives in such a way that people come to know you as Lord and Savior. That's what we're hungry for, God. That's what we want more of. So would you do it, God, by your power? We can't make it happen. Nobody, we can't manufacture that any more than Abraham could manufacture it for himself. So we just come to you, God, and we just ask you to move and speak in this season and in this time. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.